chapter five part two of the quintessence of ibsenism by george bernard shaw this librivox recording is in the public domain recording by expatriate in bangor maine chapter five the objective anti-idealist plays part two ghosts eighteen eighty one in his next play ibsen returned to the charge with such an uncompromising and outspoken attack on marriage as a useless sacrifice of human beings to an ideal that his meaning was obscured by its very obviousness ghosts as it is called is the story of a woman who has faithfully acted as a model wife and mother sacrificing herself at every point with selfless thoroughness her husband is a man with a huge capacity and appetite for sensuous enjoyment society prescribing ideal duties and not enjoyment for him drives him to enjoy himself in underhand and illicit ways when he marries his model wife her devotion to duty only makes life harder for him and he at last takes refuge in the caresses of an undutiful but pleasure-loving housemaid and leaves his wife to satisfy her conscience by managing his business affairs whilst he satisfies his cravings as best he can by reading novels drinking and flirting as aforesaid with the servants at this point even those who are most indignant with nora helmer for walking out of the doll's house must admit that mrs alving would be justified in walking out of her house but ibsen is determined to show you what comes of the scrupulous line of conduct you were so angry with nora for not pursuing mrs alving feels that her place is by her husband for better or worse and by her child now the ideal of wifely and womanly duty which demands this from her also demands that she shall regard herself as an outraged wife and her husband as a scoundrel and the family ideal calls upon her to suffer in silence lest she shatter her innocent son's faith in the purity of home life by letting him know the disreputable truth about his father it is her duty to conceal that truth from the world and from him in this she falters for one moment only her marriage has not been a love-match she has in pursuance of her duty as a daughter contracted it for the sake of her family although her heart inclined to a highly respectable clergyman a professor of her own idealism named manders in the humiliation of her first discovery of her husband's infidelity she leaves the house and takes refuge with manders but he at once leads her back to the path of duty from which she does not again swerve with the utmost devotion she now carries out an elaborate scheme of lying and imposture she so manages her husband's affairs and so shields his good name that everybody believes him to be a public-spirited citizen of the strictest conformity to current ideals of respectability and family life she sits up of nights listening to his lewd and silly conversation and even drinking with him to keep him from going into the streets and being detected by the neighbours in what she considers his vices she provides for the servant he has seduced and brings up his illegitimate daughter as a maid in her own household and as a crowning sacrifice she sends her son away to paris to be educated there knowing that if he stays at home the shattering of his ideals must come sooner or later her work is crowned with success she gains the esteem of her old love the clergyman who is never tired of holding up her household as a beautiful realization of the christian ideal of marriage 
her own martyrdom is brought to an end at last by the death of her husband in the odour of a most sanctified reputation leaving her free to recall her son from paris and enjoy his society and his love and gratitude in the flower of his early manhood but when her son comes home the facts refuse as obstinately as ever to correspond to her ideals oswald has inherited his father's love of enjoyment and when in dull rainy weather he returns from paris to the solemn strictly ordered house where virtue and duty have had their temple for so many years his mother sees him show the unmistakable signs of boredom with which she is so miserably familiar from of old then sit after dinner killing time over the bottle and finally the climax of anguish begin to flirt with the maid who as his mother alone knows is his own father's daughter but there is this world-wide difference in her insight to the cases of the father and the son she did not love the father she loves the son with the intensity of a heart-starved woman who has nothing else left to love instead of recoiling from him with pious disgust and pharisaical consciousness of moral superiority she sees at once that he has a right to be happy in his own way and that she has no right to force him to be dutiful and wretched in hers she sees too her injustice to the unfortunate father and the cowardice of the monstrous fabric of lies and false appearances she has wasted her life in manufacturing she resolves that the son's life shall not be sacrificed to ideals which are to him joyless and unnatural but she finds that the work of the ideals is not to be undone quite so easily in driving the father to steal his pleasures in secrecy and squalor they had brought upon him the diseases bred by such conditions and her son now tells her that those diseases have left their mark on him and that he carries poison in his pocket against the time foretold to him by a parisian surgeon when general paralysis of the insane may destroy his faculties in desperation she undertakes to rescue him from this horrible apprehension by making his life happy the house shall be made as bright as paris for him he shall have as much champagne as he wishes until he is no longer driven to that dangerous resource by the dullness of his life with her if he loves the girl he shall marry her if she were fifty times his half-sister but the half-sister on learning the state of his health leaves the house for she too is her father's daughter and is not going to sacrifice her life in devotion to an invalid when the mother and son are left alone in their dreary home with the rain still falling outside all she can do for him is to promise that if his doom overtakes him before he can poison himself she will make a final sacrifice of her natural feelings by performing that dreadful duty the first of all her duties that has any real basis then the weather clears up at last and the sun which the young man has so longed to see appears he asks her to give it to him to play with and a glance at him shows her that the ideals have claimed their victim and that the time has come for her to save him from a real horror by sending him from her out of the world just as she saved him from an imaginary one years before by sending him out of norway this last scene of ghosts is so appallingly tragic that the emotions it excites prevent the meaning of the play from being seized in disgust like that of a doll's house in england nobody as far as i know seems to have perceived that ghosts is to a doll's house what the late sir walter besant intended his own sequel to that play to be
footnote a forgotten production published in the english illustrated magazine for january eighteen nineteen Besant makes the money-lender as a reformed man and a pattern of all the virtues hold a forged bill in terrorum over nora's grown-up daughter engaged to his son the bill has been forged by her brother who has inherited a tendency to forge from his mother helmer having taken to drink after the departure of his wife and forfeited his social position the money-lender tells the girl that if she persists in disgracing him by marrying his son he will send her brother to jail she evades the dilemma by drowning herself the moral is that if nora had never run away from her husband her daughter would never have drowned herself note that the money-lender does over again what he did in ibsen's play with the difference that having become eminently respectable he has also become a remorseless scoundrel ibsen shows him as a good-natured fellow at bottom i wrote a sequel to this sequel another sequel was written by eleanor the youngest daughter of karl marx i forget where they appeared besant attempted to show what might come of nora's repudiation of that idealism of which he was one of the most popular professors but the effect made on besant by a doll's house was very faint compared to that produced on the english critics by the first performance of ghosts in this country in the earlier part of this essay i have shown that since mrs alving's early conceptions of duty are as valid to ordinary critics as to pastor manders who must appear to them as an admirable man endowed with helmer's good sense without helmer's selfishness a pretty general disapproval of the moral of the play was inevitable fortunately the newspaper press went to such bedlamite lengths on this occasion that mr william archer the well-known dramatic critic and translator of ibsen was able to put the whole body of hostile criticism out of court by simply quoting its excesses in an article entitled ghosts and gibberings which appeared in the pall mall gazette of the eighth of april eighteen ninety one mr archer's extracts which he offers as a nucleus for a dictionary of abuse modelled upon the wagner schimpflexicon are worth reprinting here as samples of contemporary idealist criticism of the drama Quote, descriptions of the play ibsen's positively abominable play entitled ghosts this disgusting representation reprobation due to such as aim at infecting the modern theatre with poison after desperately inoculating themselves and others an open drain a loathsome sore unbandaged a dirty act done publicly a lazar house with all its doors and windows open candid foulness kotzebue turned bestial and cynical offensive cynicism ibsen's melancholy and malodorous world absolutely loathsome and fetid gross almost putrid indecorum literary carrion crapulous stuff novel and perilous nuisance daily telegraph leading article this mass of vulgarity egotism coarseness and absurdity daily telegraph criticism unutterably offensive prosecution under lord campbell's act abominable peace scandalous from the standard naked loathsomeness most dismal and repulsive production from the daily news revoltingly suggestive and blasphemous characters either contradictory in themselves uninteresting or abhorrent from the daily chronicle a repulsive and degrading work from queen 
morbid unhealthy unwholesome and disgusting story a piece to bring the stage into disrepute and dishonour with every right-thinking man and woman from lloyd's merely dull dirt long drawn out from hawk morbid horrors of the hideous tale ponderous dullness of the didactic talk if any repetition of this outrage be attempted the authorities will doubtless wake from their lethargy from sporting and dramatic news just a wicked nightmare from the gentlewoman lugubrious diagnosis of sordid impropriety characters are prigs pedants and profligates morbid caricatures maunderings of nookshotten norwegians it is no more of a play than an average gaiety burlesque from black and white most loathsome of all ibsen's plays garbage and offal from truth ibsen's putrid play called ghosts so loathsome an enterprise from academy as foul and filthy a concoction as has ever been allowed to disgrace the boards of an english theatre dull and disgusting nastiness and malodorousness laid on thickly as with a trowel from era noisome corruption from stage descriptions of ibsen Quote, an egotist and a bungler from daily telegraph a crazy fanatic a crazy cranky being not only consistently dirty but deplorably dull from truth the norwegian pessimist in petto from black and white ugly nasty discordant and downright dull a gloomy sort of ghoul bent on groping for horrors by night and blinking like a stupid old owl when the warm sunlight of the best of life dances into his wrinkled eyes from gentlewoman a teacher of the aestheticism of the lock hospital from saturday review descriptions of ibsen's admirers quote, lovers of prurience and dabblers in impropriety who are eager to gratify their illicit tastes under the pretense of art from the evening standard ninety-seven per cent of the people who go to see ghosts are nasty-minded people who find the discussion of nasty subjects to their taste in exact proportion to their nastiness from sporting and dramatic news the sexless the unwomanly woman the unsexed females the whole army of unprepossessing cranks and petticoats educated and muck-ferreting dogs effeminate men and male women they all of them men and women alike know that they are doing not only a nasty but an illegal thing the lord chamberlain left them alone to wallow in ghosts outside a silly clique there is not the slightest interest in the scandinavian humbug or all his works a wave of human folly from truth footnote outrageous as the above extracts now seem i could make them appear quite moderate by setting beside them the hue and cry raised in new york in nineteen o five against a play of my own entitled mrs warren's profession but there was a commercial reason for that my play exposed what has since become known as the white slave traffic that is the organization of prostitution as a regular commercial industry yielding huge profits to capital invested in it directly or indirectly by pillars of society the attack on the play was so corrupt that the newspaper that took the lead in it was heavily fined shortly afterwards for trading in advertisements of the traffic but the attack on ghosts was i believe really disinterested and sincere on its moral side 
no doubt ibsen was virulently hated by some of the writers quoted as all great and original artists are hated by contemporary mediocrity which needs must hate the highest when it sees it our own mediocrities would abuse ibsen as heartily as their fathers did if they were not young enough to have started with an entirely inculcated and unintelligent assumption that he is a classic like shakespeare and goethe and therefore must not be abused and need not be understood but we have only to compare the frantic and indecent vituperation quoted above with the mere disparagement and dislike expressed towards ibsen's other plays at the same period to perceive that here ibsen struck at something much deeper than the fancies of critics as to the proper way to write plays an ordinary farcical comedy ridiculing pastor manders and making alving out to be a good fellow would have enlisted their sympathy at once as their tradition was distinctly bohemian their horror at ghosts is a striking proof of the worthlessness of mere bohemianism which has all the idle sentimentality and idolatry of conventionality without any of its backbone of contract and law End footnote. an enemy of the people eighteen eighty two after this the reader will understand the temper in which ibsen set about his next play an enemy of the people in which having done sufficient execution among the ordinary middle-class domestic and social ideals he puts his finger for a moment on commercial political ideals the play deals with a local majority of middle-class people who were pecuniarily interested in concealing the fact that the famous baths which attract visitors to their town and customers to their shops and hotels are contaminated by sewage when an honest doctor insists on exposing this danger the townspeople immediately disguise themselves ideally feeling the disadvantage of appearing in their true character as a conspiracy of interested rogues against an honest man they pose as society as the people as democracy as the solid liberal majority and other imposing abstractions the doctor in attacking them of course being thereby made an enemy of the people a danger to society a traitor to democracy an apostate from the great liberal party and so on only those who take an active part in politics can appreciate the grim fun of the situation which though it has an intensely local norwegian air will be at once recognized as typical in england not perhaps by the professional literary critics who are for the most part fainéants as far as political life is concerned but certainly by every one who has got as far as a seat on the committee of the most obscure ratepayers association as an enemy of the people contains one or two references to democracy which are anything but respectful it is necessary to examine ibsen's criticism of it with precision democracy is really only an arrangement by which the governed are allowed to choose as far as any choice is possible which in capitalistic society is not saying much the members of the representative bodies which control the executive it has never been proved that this is the best arrangement and it has been made effective only to the very limited extent short of which the dissatisfaction which it appeases might take the form of actual violence now when men had to submit to kings they consoled themselves by making it an article of faith that the king was always right idealizing him as a pope in fact in the same way we who have to submit to majorities set up voltaire's pope monsieur tout le monde and make it blasphemy against democracy to deny that the majority is always right although that as ibsen says is a lie 
it is a scientific fact that the majority however eager it may be for the reform of old abuses is always wrong in its opinion of new developments or rather is always unfit for them for it can hardly be said to be wrong in opposing developments for which it is not yet fit the pioneer is a tiny minority of the force he heads and so although it is easy to be in a minority and yet be wrong it is absolutely impossible to be in the majority and yet be right as to the newest social prospects we should never progress at all if it were possible for each of us to stand still on the democratic principles until we saw whither all the rest were moving as our statesmen declare themselves bound to do when they are called upon to lead whatever clatter we may make for a time with our filing through feudal surf collars and kicking off old mercantilist fetters we shall never march a step forward except at the heels of the strongest man he who is able to stand alone and to turn his back on the damned compact liberal majority all of which is no disparagement of parliaments and adult suffrage but simply a wholesome reduction of them to their real place in the social economy as pure machinery machinery which has absolutely no principles except the principles of mechanics and no motive power in itself whatsoever the idealization of public organizations is as dangerous as that of kings or priests we need to be reminded that though there is in the world a vast number of buildings in which a certain ritual is conducted before crowds called congregations by a functionary called a priest who is subject to a central council controlling all such functionaries on a few points there is not therefore any such thing in the concrete as the ideal catholic church nor ever was nor ever will be there may too be a highly elaborate organization of public affairs but there is no such thing as the ideal state there may be a combination of persons living by the practice of medicine surgery or physical or biological research or by drawing up wills and leases and preparing pleading or judging cases at law or by painting pictures writing books and acting plays or by serving in regiments and battleships or by manual labor or industrial service but when any of these combinations through its organizers or leaders claims to deliver the verdict of science or to act with the authority of the law or to be as sacred as the mission of art or to revenge criticisms of themselves as outrages on the honor of his majesty's services or to utter the voice of labor there is urgent need for the guillotine or whatever may be the mode in vogue of putting presumptuous persons in their proper place all abstractions invested with collective consciousness of collective authority set above the individual and exacting duty from him on pretence of acting or thinking with greater validity than he are man-eating idols red with human sacrifices this position must not be confounded with anarchism or the idealization of the repudiation of governments ibsen did not refuse to play the tax collector but may be supposed to have regarded him not as the vicar of an abstraction called the state but simply as the man sent round by a committee of citizens mostly fools as far as maximus the mystic's third empire is concerned to collect the money for the police or the paving and lighting of the streets end of chapter five part two recording by expatriate in bangor maine